The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter One, Awakening. The faint clanking of spoon on bowl woke Martin up. He forced one eye open a crack. He was in the living room, in his chair. A slow fire rolled in the wood stove. Sunbeams dappled the wall over the couch. Sunrise. Apparently, he had spent the night in his chair. That wasn't uncommon, but the pots on top of the wood stove were. His open eyes stared at the pots, his mind still too sleepy to think well. What seemed like the fading wisps of a dream floated around the edges of his mind. He was running through a forest, chased by someone. There was a girl, too. He noticed the old blue percolator among the pots. The only time the wood stove was topped with pots and the percolator was when the power was out. When did the power go out? More faint noises came from the kitchen. Margaret was working on something. He was glad to be done with his dream and back into the comforts of his regular life. Leaning against the dining room wall was his old gray backpack. That triggered his memory. His other eye popped open. He still had on his brown pants, complete with mud stains. He still wore his old flannel shirt. The events of the prior three days flooded his mind. He had been traveling through a forest. There was a girl. It wasn't a dream. Oh, you're awake, said Margaret as she came in to check one of the pots. Martin looked at her but said nothing. The curve of her cheek, her full lips, her slate blue eyes, and that little streak of gray in her hair, which she was alternately proud of and embarrassed by. It was great to see her again. He realized he was gawking. Not awake enough to talk, eh? A cup of coffee should help get you going. Margaret poured a cup from the percolator. Sorry about the floaty bits. You know how this old thing is. Martin took the cup, but continued to stare. She was wearing her blue apron, tied tight, which showed off her waist. God, she looks good, he thought. You must have been really tired when you got home. You barely got your coat and shoes off before you were asleep in your chair. I decided just to leave you there. You looked so comfortable. I fixed your guest up with a little supper before she turned in. She told me all about your adventures getting home. All about them? Martin felt a sudden surge of embarrassment. Or was it guilt? He wasn't sure why he felt guilty. There must have been something. Something he couldn't recall at the moment. Everything? He squeaked. Margaret smiled a mischievous smile. Hmm, perhaps she didn't tell me everything. That's quite the look on your face. She let him twist in the wind a while. In his mind, he quickly replayed all that he could remember. But old tube radios take a while to warm up. What had he done? He tried to replay his recent past. The power went out Monday morning. He decided to walk home. He met Susan outside the bank. His mind paused on the image of Susan's face. Faithfully married or not, Susan was easy to look at. He enjoyed walking with her and talking to her, too. That felt vaguely inappropriate. But was it? They were just talking. There was a fire. The hotels, the Walsh brothers, nothing untoward there. Yet there was that sudden hug during the gunfight on 93. Margaret wouldn't have smiled at that. He touched Susan's bare foot when she had her blister. Was that wrong? It was just a doctor thing nothing more. There was riding with Isabel up to Lawrence and the bridge. 
Was it his falling on top of Susan beside the 495 bridge and looking into her eyes? Had Susan described that event in a darker light? He would explain. Uh, how could he explain? I should just let you stew a little while longer, Margaret said. Your expressions are priceless, but I think you're still too groggy for any serious questions. Sip your coffee and wake up. I'll warm up a slice of toast. She disappeared into the kitchen. She told me about her apartment burning down and you offering to help her find a hotel, Margaret said from the kitchen. She returned with a slice of toasted bread and laid it on the wood stove to warm it up. She said how you were trying to help her get to a hotel, but each one had something wrong with it, a bunch of shooting on 93, and how you fell asleep behind some rocks and spent the night under a bridge. Ugh, spent the night sounded terrible when she said it. Uh, yes, but we were only resting. I mean, I never, I mean, nothing ever. I know, Martin, I know, relax. She said you were a perfect gentleman the whole trip, and I believe her. Uh, you do? I mean, of course you do, because nothing... Of course not. We've been married a long time, Martin. I know you're not a lech, out to paw other women. You're a nice, safe man. Here, eat your toast. Somehow, a nice, safe man sounded synonymous with boring, but he resisted the urge to argue the point. No good had come of that. Instead, he crunched on his toast. Martin didn't realize how hungry he was. He knew he had done nothing untoward during his three-day trip, but still worried about the wrong impressions. He remembered how quickly Kevin saw an implied seamy side of him and Susan traveling together. Kevin! He might have been killed by those carjackers. That sobering thought pushed Martin out of his worry over Margaret's feelings or his own reputation. There were more serious issues to face. This outage is something really different, he said gravely. We need to get ready, as ready as we can. Margaret's impish smile faded. Ready? Like what? We have the wood for heat, the hand pump on the well, plenty of oil for the lamps, and the generator for the fridge and freezer. I even got it running myself. We'll be fine until the power comes back on. What else were you thinking of? I'm still thinking. He sat up and gulped down some coffee. This is going to be more than a few days without cable TV and keeping the fridge door closed. Margaret nodded. I was over to Lance and Mary's yesterday. They're worried about this outage lasting a long time, too. They can't take the cold all that well. They need to start using their old wood stove again. I'm worried about Jess and Nick, too. I've been hauling over five-gallon jugs of water for them since Tuesday. Their well pump doesn't work with Nick's generator. They're worried, too. Could be that people will be our biggest. Good morning, everyone, said Susan with a yawn. I wanted to sleep in more. I was so tired. But that room is so bright. She stood in front of the wood stove, basking in the radiant heat. Oh, is that coffee? She started to ask Martin, but quickly shifted her focus to Margaret. Oh, could I have some coffee, please? Margaret nodded, then went into the kitchen and returned with a mug and another slice of bread. I see you found Lindsay's old robe. It fits you pretty well. While your bread is toasting, you'll probably want to freshen up. Oh, yes, please. I only washed up a little last night. Margaret tested the water in one of the pots atop the stove. Here's some warm water. The basin is on the counter beside the sink. Mix in as much of the cold water as you like from the white bucket. I'll show you where the washcloths and towels are. She looked over her shoulder at Martin. We could use another bucket of water. 
while Margaret led Susan into the bathroom with the pot of hot water. Martin slipped on his boots and barn coat. He picked up the empty gray bucket, then the jug of priming water, and headed out the back door. His muscles were stiff and sore. The cold morning air bit his cheeks. On his way around the chicken coop, the hens began to cluck and coo, expecting treats. Well, not right now, girls, he said to them. But I see your food hopper is almost empty. I'll tend to that soon. One of the hens was almost scolding with her loud baw, cock, 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 call. It's not totally empty, Red. You'll be fine. Don't be such a drama queen. Martin positioned the bucket beneath the pump spout and poured in a few glugs of water from the jug into the top of the pump. After a few cycles of pumping, water surged out into the bucket with each stroke. He had to trade off pumping arms after a while. Filling a five-gallon bucket by hand was a bit of work, especially after just waking up. He set the full bucket on the kitchen counter, next to the filter and the white bucket. Margaret placed a fresh pot of water on the stove to heat. She'll be a while getting cleaned up. Come over here, finish your coffee, and tell me more about what you meant by get ready. You had such a serious look on your face. Martin warmed his hands on his coffee mug. Well, as you said, we've got wood. We've got the well for water. Other stuff, though, maybe not so much. Like? No one seems to know what's going on out there, but it sounds like the power grid has failed all over the country, maybe even overseas. It could be down for several months. Traveling up here, I started to see what a widespread failure means. No power to pump fuel means no trucks delivering everything from gasoline to groceries. What we have right now might be all we'll ever have. When people start to lose hope that trucks will refill the stores, they probably won't take it well. Well, surely people can rig up other ways to pump some fuel, Margaret protested. They probably will, but it won't be anywhere near the quantity it takes to keep all those trucks running seven days a week. Then there's the refineries behind the pumps. Those will likely shut down for lack of power. Maybe they can rig up one or two to run on alternate sources, but again, nowhere near enough to sustain what we had. Margaret stared into her coffee cup, her brow deeply furrowed. We have those ten gallons of gas out in the shed. How long would that last in the generator? Martin worked through some mental math. One gallon gave him about eight hours of runtime. That would be roughly eighty hours of generator time. Four sets of half-hour runs a day, two hours of runtime a day. We have about forty days of generator fuel, assuming that we don't use any of it for the chainsaws or the wood splitter, or anything else. Margaret did mental math while she flipped over the toast on top of the stove. That would take us up to Thanksgiving or so. True, but there aren't 40 days worth of food in the fridge and freezer. We have more gas in the car and truck, if we really needed it, but we'll run out of fridge food long before we run out of gas to keep it cold. Hmm, food, Margaret mused to herself. Right, we've got what we've got, but how long will it last without getting more? You went shopping last Thursday, right? Coming up here, I saw stores picked clean. By the time we run low, there won't be any more out there to go and get. On top of that, running out of food might not be our most difficult problem. Almost everyone else is going to run out, too, some sooner than others. Susan emerged from the bathroom, brushing her hair. Boy, it's amazing how getting cleaned up makes you feel better. Margaret handed Susan her toast and refilled her coffee cup. We'll talk later, Martin said. My turn to get cleaned up now. 
We need to take a trip into town as soon as we can. Oh, said Susan and Margaret in unison. Yesterday, Holly Baldwin was saying that the market basket in Londeville was going to reopen at nine o'clock today. I was going to tell you about it last night, but apparently I just fell asleep. This might be our last shot at a grocery run for a long time. We'd better take advantage of it. The line will probably be long, like we saw in Stoneham, so the sooner we get there, the better. Besides, we need to get to my truck, and it's not too far from Market Basket. You two get ready to go while I clean up and shave off this stubble. Sounds good. I'll make up a list. Margaret strode into the kitchen. Susan was left alone, looking a little lost for lack of anything to do. Martin emerged from the bathroom, patting his face dry. It felt good to be rid of his three-day-old stubble. We'll need some cash, too. I'm sure no one will be taking credit cards. They might not take checks, either, since the banks are closed. He pulled a book from the bookcase and flipped it open. He pulled out three small envelopes, handing one to Margaret and one to Susan, and himself pocketing the third. Susan looked in her envelope. You keep this much cash in a book? Aren't you worried someone will find it? Martin held out the spine of the book for her to read. Strong's Hebrew, Chaldee, and Greek Dictionary. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who's going to be opening this book, he smiled. Margaret handed Martin and Susan each a slip of paper. From what you said about the store's setting dollar limits, I figured we should each concentrate on part of this list. Above the line are things we need in order of priority. Below the line are alternates in case you can't get what's above the line. Okay, good. Let's dress warm. We might be outside in line for a long time, Martin said. They each turned to get coats and gloves. Martin stepped into the extra bedroom and opened up his gun safe. Having seen the trouble several times, up close and personal, he thought maybe he should be ready for trouble this time. What are you doing? asked Margaret. She lowered her voice. You're going to bring a gun shopping? Her tone implied absurdity. Well, people out there have been acting crazy, he said. He recalled the fights, the shootout, and the carjackers. We're just going shopping at Market Basket, Martin, not Chicago's South Side. People aren't like that up here. The worst thing that's ever happened in Londeville was that stink over the school lunch program. Martin stared at the nine mill for a moment. A crowded store didn't seem like a likely place for an ambush. Outside of a few pockets in the bigger cities, New Hampshire was a pretty uneventful place. He put it back and closed the safe. Perhaps she was right. Yeah, it's not like Boston or anything. What's with this traffic? Margaret asked rhetorically. A steady stream of cars flowed down South Road, past the intersection that was downtown Cheshire. The trendy SUVs and crossovers had bundles and boxes lashed to their roof racks. Others, without roof racks, had back seats packed high or trunks too full to close. Margaret spotted a gap in the traffic and chirped the Ford Focus's tires as she turned left onto South Road. Martin leaned forward and fussed with the radio. Maybe while we're out, we can get some news. The seek function on the AM radio found nothing but static. But the seek found a weak signal on FM. Massive breach of the road closure at 93. Mass State Police managed to reclose the highway as of 6.30 this morning. Dozens of cars, out of the hundreds that had been stopped at the border since Tuesday, rushed the gap before the troopers could regain control. Governor Baylock issued a statement this morning. 
promising to increase staffing at the checkpoints to speed up the processing of eligible citizens. He urged travelers to remain calm during these necessary emergency procedures, but tempers are rising in the crowd at the border. New Hampshire state police officials are urging people not to attempt to drive south until the situation can be properly assessed and brought under control. In other news, Governor Vincent's spokesman tried to calm concerns that the governor might follow the actions taken in Massachusetts yesterday. Despite some isolated pockets of unrest in Concord, Manchester, and Portsmouth, law enforcement officers from nearby towns will not be ordered to report to urban departments. Vincent remains confident that the cities can handle the recent increase in crime by other means. WGIR will now go off the air until 10 to the hour in an effort to maximize the station's generator fuel. Our reporters will continue to gather news while we're off the air. We hope to have an update for you on that ongoing protest at the Gold Street Walmart when we return. Thank you for making WGIR-FM Manchester your radio station. Martin tried to locate another station, but could only find stations too weak to be intelligible. Sounds like a mess at the border, and in the cities, too. Margaret nodded toward Susan in the back seat. She mentioned angry crowds around the gas stations and stores when you were walking. Think Nutfield might be like that? Lots of gas stations. We could take the side roads and skip the town center. It's a longer route, but maybe faster? Definitely, said Martin. The center of Nutfield can be a quagmire, even on good days. While on the side streets, they could see vans and station wagons and driveways being packed up with boxes and clothes, bedding and toys. The parents looked somber. The children seemed to enjoy the adventure. As they crossed over 93, they could see that the southbound side was filled with cars, all inching along. The radio guy said the border was closed. I wonder how many of them will run out of gas down there, Martin wondered. They arrived at Market Basket at 8 o'clock, but the line was already hundreds of people long. We're an hour early, and already there's nowhere to park, Margaret said. How about if I drop you off? You get in line, and we'll join you after I park, uh, somewhere. Sounds good. Martin popped open the passenger door and stepped out. Susan stepped out of the back seat. Margaret did a double take. She clearly did not intend for Martin and Susan to be waiting in line, together, without her. Yet she had no options. The car behind her honked. Martin could tell that Susan was still uncomfortable with Margaret. He could see the conundrums for both of them. I'll get a place in line, he told Margaret, carefully avoiding the word we. Get back as soon as you can. The car honked again, so she drove off, looking worried. I guess I shouldn't have gotten out, huh, said Susan. She didn't look very happy. Yeah, that probably wasn't the best idea, said Martin. I wasn't trying to make her angry with me, although I probably did. I just didn't relish the idea of riding around with her and figured we'd end up parking far away and having to walk. I really wasn't looking forward to a long walk with her either. Well, why not? I don't think she likes me. Oh, I wouldn't read too much into things, said Martin. She's only known you for less than a day. Besides, what's not to like? Susan gave him a skeptical look with one raised eyebrow. I can tell she's not happy that I'm here. Well, she wasn't expecting a house guest. It takes some getting used to. Just go easy around her for a while. We've all got a lot of adjusting to do these days. Oh, hey, there she is already, said Martin. 
He waved to get Margaret's attention. Maybe don't stand so close, by the way, he said quietly out of the side of his mouth. Susan took a step sideways. Somebody pulled out in the third row, Margaret said as she walked up. So I got a good spot. She looked from Martin to Susan and back, as if mentally measuring the distance between them. The line has been moving pretty well, I see. You were near the corner when I dropped you off. Yep, we should be inside the doors pretty soon. When they got inside the store, a large sign announced a $50 limit per person. The aisles were Black Friday crowded with that semi-frantic river of humanity typical of Black Fridays. Battery-powered work lights were perched on stacks of boxes so as to flood some light down each aisle. Nonetheless, the light was too feeble for the large space. It was still dark. Dressed in bulky coats and hats, the majority of the shoppers were little more than dark, lumpy shapes shuffling about. Their puffs of breath glowed, backlit, from distant lanterns and wavering flashlights. This is why I thought we should bring flashlights, Martin said to Margaret. Okay, yes, it's dark. Let's split up, Margaret said, with a glance at Susan. What's on your lists are in different aisles anyhow. It'll be quicker this way. Good idea, said Martin. Let's meet up at the cart rack just outside the doors when we're done. Margaret clicked on her flashlight. Knowing the layout of the store, she quickly disappeared amongst the dark swirl of shoppers. Martin glanced at his list. He knew roughly where the canned meats would be and was about to dive in, but hesitated when he saw Susan's lost look. He looked at her list. Dry beans, canned fruits or veggies, alternates, soups, gravy, cans or mixes. Well, those will be down there, past that column, he pointed into the dark void. She looked apprehensive. To lighten her mood a bit, he added, and we're not totally desperate yet, so don't go knocking out people for a box of minute rice or anything. Oh, stop it, she smacked his shoulder. The sparkle in her eye was better than her worried look. Susan turned on her flashlight and set off toward the center of the store. Martin took one of the plastic shopping baskets. His list said, any kind of meat, fresh, canned meats, cheeses, alternates, powdered or canned milk. He pushed through the crowds toward the back of the store. The shelves were half empty. The store had only opened an hour ago. Yeah, this won't last long, he thought. The volume of shoppers was like Black Friday, but the faces of the shoppers, occasionally illuminated in flashlight beams, showed no holiday cheer. Worried looks, frustrated, confused. A few even looked fearful. People were grabbing things off the shelves without looking to see what they grabbed. Maybe they're all realizing this could be the last of it, Martin thought. Fifty dollars' worth is not a winter's supply of food. The canned tuna was gone, except for two dented cans in the back of the shelf. He took those. A third can was on the floor, but had no label. He took that, too. It was probably tuna. There were some cans of Spam left. He started placing some in his basket. A young mother with a baby in a backpack was trying to take cans faster than he was. It was a competition. There was an animal fear in her eyes. Martin paused. This was the second time he had seen that look. The young mother paused, too, and looked at him as if suspicious of some sort of trick. He handed her a can, but she kept her cautious stare at him. He extended his arm a little bit more to repeat his offer. He felt like he was coaxing his stray cat to take some food. She slowly took the can. When he handed her another, 
he saw a trace of a smile. Martin shook his head. He was such a softy. He sighed while exploring another shelf. His flashlight beam revealed that there were several rows of Vienna sausage cans. Nonetheless, he raked in a dozen. Once he started taking some, others followed suit. The fresh meats case was empty. No bacon, no ham, no frozen chickens. The deli case was empty, too. No sliced anything. The crowd swarmed around the dairy cases. Martin pushed his way in to see what remained, which was not much. People were scrambling for the yogurts in particular. In a random swipe of a flashlight beam, he spotted some packaged cheese bricks that had fallen down into the bottom of the case. He reached between two jostling women and grabbed them. Two bricks of cheddar. A score. After a bit of mental math to calculate his haul thus far, Martin guessed that he could get a few more cans of Vienna sausages to round out his fifty dollars. When he returned to that aisle, however, the shelves were empty. He looked up and down the crowded aisles, trying to spot either Margaret or Susan. He thought that he could take any over-quota items they might have to round out his fifty bucks worth. While in the pet food aisle, he saw some canned cat food that had not been hit too hard. Hmm, Pudge used to like the tuna flavor. I wonder if there's actually any real tuna in there. There were several cans of tuna-flavored cat food. The label said it contained seafood products, whatever that was. Could mean tuna. It seemed meat-ish enough, perhaps as a last resort, but protein nonetheless. Several cans went into his basket. The checkout line was the bottleneck. Even with all 15 lanes open, everything had to be done by hand. He saw Susan in lane 7, so he deliberately chose a different one. He could see Margaret outside by the carts, looking in. The cashier had a three-ring notebook of the inventory, a handheld calculator, and an open cash tray. Martin saw at least three assistant managers walking up and down the cashier stations with holsters on their hips. Maybe they expected trouble with the open cash drawers. Hmm, maybe I should have brought mine, too. Still, Margaret was right. Market Basket didn't turn out to be the OK Corral. Martin's basket came in over the $50 limit. He happily gave back a few cans of cat food. Forty-nine seventy-six, Close enough. Martin saw that he and Susan were done about the same time. He exited by another set of doors to avoid being seen walking out with her. Perhaps he was reading too much into the subtle looks that were there, but he thought Margaret looked relieved to see him and Susan arrive from different directions. So, how did you do? Martin asked. Not a lot of choices in there, but this was the most that I've seen on store shelves since this whole thing started. At least I maxed out my limit. There wasn't much left in the fresh fruits and veggies, said Margaret. Still, I got some. These three bags of rice, too. Nobody was bothering the spice rack aisle, so I got a lot of salt, another pepper, garlic powder, and the like. I was over my limit, so I had to put some of it back. Spices can be expensive. They turned to look at Susan. There wasn't much to choose from in the Kengood aisles, she said. Most of it was gone. People were pushing and grabbing just everything. It was crazy. I could only get these three cans, apricots, okra, and hominy. I think that's a vegetable. There were several bags of beans left and some lentils, so I got them. I figured I had money left, so I got these. She opened her bag to reveal two big cans of shortening. What? said Margaret with a scolding tone. That 
wasn't on your list. Susan looked contrite. No, but everything else on my list was gone, even the alternates. I figured it was better to get something than nothing. And that lady Pat was talking about cooking oil, so I... Well, you did good, Martin said. Margaret shot him a disapproving frown for negating her scold. Even if we don't need the shortening, he said to Margaret, we might trade it for something we do need. Oh, okay, now which way to the car? Margaret subtly made the point of walking between Martin and Susan on the way back to the car. No one said anything. Martin peered over the many car roofs. The line to get into the store was longer than when they arrived. We got inside the store during the first hour. I'm afraid those people in line won't even find an orphan can of Vienna sausages by the time they get in. Margaret dropped Martin off at his truck. The bus station parking lot was nearly empty. Martin urged Susan to sit in the front seat. She declined with a hint of, don't make me go in there, in her eyes. Martin insisted. He knew she certainly couldn't ride home alone with him, and Margaret wouldn't like playing chauffeur. I've got a couple of stops I want to make on my way home, he said. To Susan, he said, help Margaret with the groceries, but let her put them away. She knows where everything goes. Margaret nodded with a little darn right nod. Margaret's focus drove away, Susan looking back like a dog being taken to the pound. Martin shook his head and sighed. I sure hope this gets better soon. On the way home, Martin stopped by Tractor Supply. He remembered Red scolding about the half-empty feeder. While he had a fair amount of feed on hand, there wouldn't be any more factory-made chicken feed for a long time. He didn't want to call his flock to fit their food supply any sooner than he had to. Eggs were a recurring protein source. There were so few vehicles in the parking lot that he wondered if the store was open. Flashlights wavered inside, so he decided it must be. He peered through the glass door into the darkened space. When he saw movement, he knocked and waved. The manager came up cautiously. Martin recognized him, though he didn't know his name. From the way the man's face relaxed, Martin could see that he recognized Martin, too. Hey, said Martin, are you guys open? I guess, said the man. Cash only, of course. Well, of course. Uh, what's with the guns? Martin pointed to the pistol tucked in the manager's waistband. The woman, further inside, perhaps his wife, had a deer rifle draped over her forearm. He questioned his assumption that carrying was unnecessary. Others clearly thought it was prudent. Ah, uh, well, there was a bunch of kids that came in yesterday saying they wanted to buy some guns. I told them we don't sell guns, but they didn't believe me. Said I sold gun safes, so I must sell guns too. Even if I did sell guns, I sure as heck wouldn't sell any of the punks like them. Told them to get lost. They said they'd be back. Yipes. Well, I didn't see any punk types when I drove up, said Martin. Uh, good. Well, what do you need? Layer pellets, Martin said. Got any bags left? Uh, not many. Lucy, take this guy back to poultry. The woman nodded and picked up a flashlight. She didn't put down the rifle. Hmm, only three left, said Martin. Just crumble? Guess these'll have to do. He hefted the bags onto the flat metal cart. The shelf that usually held bags of scratch grains was empty. Hmm, no more scratch? The woman shook her head. Martin's flashlight shone on a pair of 50-pound bags of feed corn on a pallet beneath the shelf. 
Now I guess I could take these and make my own scratch, eh? The woman shrugged. After paying the manager, Martin loaded up the heavy bags into the back of his truck. Through his windshield, he could see several youths in hooded sweatshirts run from the corner of the auto parts store to behind the coffee shop. He pretended not to notice them as he hefted up the last bag and closed the tailgate. The youths peeked around the corner of the coffee shop, then scurried behind a parked van. Martin rolled the cart back up to the store. The manager pushed the door open for him. Uh, just a heads up, Martin said softly. I saw four kids in hoodies sneaking up this way. They're behind that green van over there. I couldn't tell if they had anything with them. The manager glanced toward the van. Uh, thanks. The manager pulled the heavy cart in, then tipped it up to make a barricade behind the door. He took out his pistol and racked the slide. His wife crouched down, propping her rifle on the counter. She racked the bolt. The manager gave a little wave as Martin turned back to his truck. Martin drove to the other exit of the parking lot to avoid the youths hiding behind the van. Yeah, this isn't going to go well, he thought. He regretted leaving home without one of his pistols, but wasn't sure what he had done with it in that situation. Stay and defend another man's store? Nah. Maybe if the youths had attacked him, but better to just be gone than risk a fight. Carrying had never seemed important before. Very little ever happened in New Hampshire. He made a mental note to make sure that his guns were ready and magazines full, in case groups of hoodies became more common. Once back on the road home, he passed several gas stations. Two had hastily spray-painted cardboard signs that said, No power, no gas. Or simply, no gas. The Shell station had two long lines of cars waiting. Martin could hear a good-sized generator running. The owners had rigged up something. Shell appeared to be the only gas station in town and swamped with would-be customers. Hmm, wonder how long that'll last. His truck still had over half a tank, so he didn't feel like joining the block's long lines. If Market Basket had been any model, the people at the end of the line may find the underground tanks dry before they get their turn. That would be a lot of waiting for nothing. He didn't feel like waiting. As he approached the Irving Oil Station, he could see a handful of cars parked in a line and people standing around near the pumps. The end of the line was just out the driveway and onto the road. He glanced down at his gas gauge. Well, half is good, but more is better. Yeah, might be worth it, Martin thought. The fact that the end of the line was at the curb cut meant that he wouldn't be hemmed in. If there turned out to be no gas, he could veer off and be on his way. He pulled in behind a landscaper's truck and shut off his engine. He joined the ring of spectators watching some people working on one of the pumps. Martin stood beside a large man in insulated coveralls. The logo on his back matched that on the door of the landscaper's truck. Hey there, Martin said to the large man. What are they doing? The question felt kind of lame, but it was an attempt at conversation. Guy's going to try to run that pump from this little generator. We're all waiting to see if he can pull it off. Not much gas in town. Lines at Shell were too long. Well, I could use some more, Martin said. Hopefully they won't run out too quickly. I'm not too far back in line, so maybe I've got a shot at it. That's my truck parked behind yours. Bah, well, we'll see, said the man. So far, it doesn't look like they even know what they're doing. 
helpful bystanders were stepping up to offer their advice, which was either contradictory or unwelcome. The manager waved off their various suggestions and continued directing his minions. Looks like showtime, said the large man. The manager started up the little generator and let it run for a minute. Then, with great ceremony, he clamped on the second spring clamp. Sparks flew like fireworks gone wrong. A fire broke out beside the generator and quickly spread to the pump. One of the employees deployed a fire extinguisher, dousing the pump, manager, and bystanders with foam. Someone from the crowd started spraying with a second extinguisher. The fire was out fairly quickly, but the tempers were not. A rancorous argument flared up between the opinionated bystanders, the manager, and the foam-drenched spectators. It was nearly coming to blows. Others in the crowd took one side or the other. Yeah, well, that stinks, said the large man. Looks like they won't be getting any gas after all. He turned to walk to his truck. Martin followed. Martin studied the man's truck. On the shallow flatbed, ahead of the mowers, was a red metal tank. Atop that, a hose and nozzle. Uh, is that a gas tank on the back of your truck? Martin asked. Yeah, but it's empty. That's what I was hoping to fill. But is that a pump on top of it? Uh, yeah, why? Well, I was just thinking. They blew up their pump out there, and their generator. But what if you used your pump? You know, attach it to a hose, run that down into the underground tank through one of those filling ports? You could pump their gas, probably even get a deal on some for free in exchange. The large man stopped and stroked his short beard. Hmm, that pump does have a good draw. Probably could draw up 15 feet or more, but it's 12 volt. I'd have to pull my truck up close. Martin walked back and pointed to one of the filling ports in the concrete paving. Yeah, you could pull up over here. Might be slower than the regular gas pump, but it'd be something. Yeah, well, I like that, said the large man. He and Martin walked up to the roiling squabble, but the manager was far too engrossed in his arguments to hear the large man, or Martin, trying to speak to him. Angry at being ignored, the large man stomped back to grab one of the heavy steel port covers. He stomped back and spiked it onto the concrete near the epicenter of the arguments. Stunned by the loud clang, everyone stopped and stared. Everyone just shut up! A large and seething man was a good follow-up to a loud clang for keeping the peace. My little friend here has a suggestion. Now shut up and listen. Martin related his idea to the manager, who dismissed it at first as impossible. The large man scowled at the manager, who then tried to justify objections with technicalities. But there's no way to meter the amounts. How will I know how much various people take or, or how to charge them? And besides, I don't have that much change in the till. Not put off by technicalities, Martin continued. Okay, how's this? Don't pump it into cars directly. Have my large friend here pump the gas into a five-gallon bucket. But, marked at four gallons so it won't spill easily, use a funnel to pour it into the cars. Yeah, yeah, like that one that that guy has over there. Everyone gets just four gallons. Four is better than nothing. You could charge, say, five dollars a gallon. So each customer pays twenty dollars. Easy math, easy change. They get some gas, you get some profit. Five dollars a gallon? asked the big man. That's like double the real price. Well, true, Martin said. 
But if this is the last gas in town, would you pay five bucks per gallon to get some? The large man nodded thoughtfully. He addressed the crowd in a booming voice. If we get a pump running, who's willing to pay five bucks a gallon for some gas? Some hands were raised. Others nodded their heads. Still others murmured agreement. Only a few grumbled about the price. Well, if you don't like it, you can just leave. Price is five bucks a gallon. The manager was warming to the idea, too, since it meant a tidy profit. He agreed. The large man pulled his truck up to the port pointed out by the manager. A long rubber hose was attached to the end of the pump's draw tube and lowered into the underground tank. Duct tape secured the pump to the truck's bumper. Okay, we're all set, said the large man. He turned on the pump. After some gurgling and spurting, gasoline began to flow into the bucket. The crowd cheered. And my little friend here gets his four gallons for free. The manager was about to object. Hey, it was his idea. Without him, you'd still be over there arguing. The manager acquiesced. Thanks, guys, said Martin. One of the employees held a long-necked funnel up to Martin's truck. Martin poured slowly, but still spilled a couple of times from pouring too quickly. The needle on his gas gauge moved up a little. Well, at least it's something, Martin thought. He waved to the large man as he drove away. The large man had both hands operating the pump, so he could only nod in return. The next car in line pulled up to the makeshift filling station. On the drive home, Martin tried to calculate how much gas they would have between their two vehicles and what they had stored in the shed. A few gallons should be kept in the Focus to use just in case they needed to drive somewhere, he reasoned. The Focus got better mileage than his truck, so it could go farther. But the Focus would not haul very much if they needed to haul anything, or to go anywhere that needed four-wheel drive, so a few gallons should be left in the truck, too. The majority of their gas, however, could go toward the generator or the chainsaws. He still had a couple of bottles of Staybill in the shed. In the coming cold of winter, they could use ice for the freezer or set things outside at night to freeze. They wouldn't need to run the generator every day. If they rationed their gas carefully, there might be enough left to run the chainsaws and the wood splitter in the spring for next winter's firewood. Chainsaws were a lot less work than his two-man saw, although he and Margaret had gotten pretty good with it. Martin felt a little better about their prospects. Life without gasoline would be very different, but hardly the end of the world. Martin smiled, remembering how Hollywood writers of post-apocalyptic movies couldn't really imagine a world without plentiful fuel. Like infinite ammunition, fuel was presumed to just always be there. Even in classics like Mad Max, in which fuel was supposed to be so rare that it was worth killing for, the bad guys constantly drove around the desert in huge trucks and hot-rod dune buggies as if fuel were no concern at all. Or, in some post-apocalyptic novels, evil biker gangs would continually maraud through the countryside with apparently limitless fuel for their Harleys. Martin did not have Hollywood's infinite supply of fuel, but it felt like a workable amount, if they were careful. Martin found Margaret at the dining room table with several open books, a stack of papers, and a calculator. He wondered where Susan was, but knew better than to have the first thing he asked his wife was where Susan was. Life in a minefield requires constant vigilance. Well, what are you doing? he asked as he hung up his coat. Calculating. Martin waited for more, but it didn't come. 
Oh, obviously, but what? How long our food supply will last, assuming this is all that we get. Oh, Martin pulled up a chair. Yeah, based on what I saw at Market Basket, there probably won't be any more grocery runs for a long time. From what you were saying about how the power is out this time, it doesn't sound like they'll be fixing it soon. You said maybe a few months? Martin shrugged. No, at best, but that's just a guess. Well, let's say you're right, and the power stays out for three months. Even if it comes back on, around mid-January, how soon before fuel starts being produced? Factories resume production, trucks start to roll, and stores get restocked? Martin stared at the tablecloth as he calculated. A cold restart of such a complex economy would be spotty, at best. Some places might return to normal in a couple of months, after the fuel started to flow. Some areas might not see normal again for almost a year. Hmm. Could be a couple of months or more before that, he said. That's what I was thinking, too, said Margaret. Say they get the power back on in mid-January. A couple of months after that would mean stores might have food by, say, mid-March, optimistically. Okay, Martin gestured for her to continue. Margaret leaned back and blew a breath through pursed lips. I went through everything we have in the house now, including our new stuff from today, trying to figure out how long it would last if we couldn't get more. This is just a quick estimate, mind you. I haven't had time to figure things out like vitamins and nutrients yet. Just the basics of carbs and proteins. Martin leaned forward. This was a crucial bit of information for future planning. On the plus side, we have far more than we need in the ways of sugars, jams, jellies, and things like that. Those aren't carbs we could subsist on, however. Looking at just our basics and a 2,000-calorie-a-day diet, with normal intake, etc., we would have had enough to get us by until well beyond March, if it were just the two of us. Martin gave her a stern look. I know, I know, she said, just saying, if. Susan burst through the back door, making considerable noise. Oh, you! It's a lot of work pumping all that water. It's heavy, too. She sat down the two buckets and closed the door. Put one on the counter, Margaret said, the other near the wood stove. Susan took a deep breath and resumed hauling the buckets. But with the three of us, Margaret continued softly, we've only got enough carbs from the wheat and the pasta and the rice to last until mid-January. Proteins might only make it to Christmas, if we stretch things. Plain and simple, if we can't get more from someplace, we don't have enough food for three people to last until March. Thanks for listening. You can check out the rest of the books in the series at mick-roland.com. If you're enjoying the story and wonder if there was some small way to show your appreciation, I've set up a page at buymeacoffee.com. That's buymeacoffee, all one word, dot com slash mickroland. Again, all one word. Check it out.